The Gemara incited Aleph in its discussion of whether there is an obligation or a prohibition in terms of teaching Torah to women begins with the following. The mission there states that if a woman has, has sufficient merit, then the effects of the sota order can be delayed by up to three years. So the Gemara discusses what kind of merit are we discussing? Zuchusa Demai. What merit is so great that it could delay the effects of the sota order for up to three years? The first presumption would be, of course, that the merit of Torah, that's a great merit. However, but a woman is not commanded, and although she does have merit, and she is rewarded for studying Torah, but it's axiomatic in the Torah that, this of course is a major premise, that a person that does something not obligated, does it voluntarily and optionally, is not on the same level as someone that does something because they're commanded, because they have the mitzvah. The Gemara is taking that as, a, as an assumption that because women aren't obligated to study Torah, there's no way that the amount of merit accrued by her study of Torah is going to be enough to protect her. So therefore the Gemara says, Perhaps you're referring to merit of mitzvah, other mitzvahs which they may be obligated, to which the Gemara says, does the mitzvah protect you as much as Torah? But we've learned as by mitzvah Torah. Or the pasuk says mitzvahs are compared to candles. Torah is compared to the light itself, and therefore it says mitzvah The Torah is that mitzvahs are compared to near to a candle, Torah is compared to light itself, to teach us just as candles or lamps are only temporary means of, of giving you light, likewise mitzvahs are like temporary, uh, it's, it's, like, it's like those donuts in your car, it's not a permanent fix. It's something which will go a little bit. And therefore, mitzvahs only protect you at the time of your involvement with the mitzvah. Like a candle, as long as you're holding it, it's there. But it's not going to cast light afar, only as long as you have it. Mitzvahs, while you're involved in the mitzvah, will give you a protective uh, aura, but not beyond. Torah, on the other hand, it says, Torah has more of an eternal effect. Therefore, the question is, what merit is going to extend for two or three years to save the woman from the effect of the salt of water if it's not Torah? Mitzvahs can't have such a long-term effect. Yet, what, what Torah learning do they have? So the Gemara does not at any point entertain the notion that maybe even so, their Torah learning is valuable enough to protect them. Because it is a mitzvah, it's certainly something which they do get credit for and they get merit for it, maybe that merit should be sufficient. The Gemara does not even entertain that as a possibility. Notice then the Gemara's conclusion. The Gemara's, um, well, Megan, no, because of the word Megan. Right, Megina means to protect from Hagonah. Like Haganah, right? And the Gemara continues, 
Nigina umatzl beidna the law. Osik be iguni magnet to oiloi matzl. Mitzvah beidna the osik be beidna the law. Osik be iguni magnet to oiloi matzl. Okay. Ravina, my. That's what we're going to continue. We're actually in the second wide line. Ravina, my lo olam schustar. Therefore, it has to be that the merit that we're dealing with is the merit of Torah study. As to the question that she's not obligated, how could she have, how could she have the merit? So the Gemara answers, Although they are not obligated, but the agra, the makrin, the mastin, banayu, the natra, Lahula Gavrayu, Ado Osmi Baymid Rosha, Miloy Palgan Bahadayu, in the merit that they have for bringing their children to Torah, to learn, to school, and the merit that they have for encouraging their husbands to learn and to patiently await their husbands' return, even when they travel great distances to go to faraway cities and calls to learn, and they patiently await for them at home, that is sufficient merit. To cause them to, as the Gemara says, literally divide in half the Torah of the men. What the Gemara is saying is a very profound thing here. What basis? There's no specific mitzvah. We're talking about a mit- seeking a mitzvah that provides this merit, yet there's no yeah. specific mitzvah. Notice what are we dealing with over here? This is something that would be the opposite of what a person nowadays would think. Nowadays, you would think that if a woman encourages her husband to learn, as laudable as it is, or if a person, if a woman encourages her children to learn, or brings them there, or is an enabler, as we call it, so that act of enabling is certainly not the same level as her actual study. I remember a certain woman was once telling me that she she has a problem. She has um, she has little children, and she wanted to go to Drisha to have a chavrusa. So the question is, what should she do? You know, uh, should her husband stay home with the kids and wait and childcare? She wants to learn, and it was a difficult thing to try to explain. That what the Gemara is saying is that ultimately works out. We'll just briefly dwell on this: that if she takes her child to school to learn, she winds up getting greater reward than if she doesn't and she learns herself. And the reason is based on the following premise. Apparently, we see from the Gemara that the enabler splits with the person that does it equally. On the other hand, we also have the principle that we see from the Gemara that a person that learns Torah, and if a person learns Torah in an unobligated manner, gets less reward than if a person learns Torah in an obligated fashion like all mitzvahs. If you put these two principles together, you get the following conclusion. If I do a mitzvah not obligated, I'm less than a person, or I get less reward and merit than a person that does the mitzvah obligated. However, if I enable an obligated person to do his mitzvah, and it's through me that he's able to do that, so then I'm able to split his reward, and therefore I get the reward or half the reward of of a person who's the equivalent of obligated. In other words, women are at are at a kind of um, advantage. They're at an advantage if they support and act in the supporting role of Torah 
of an obligated person than if they would do their own study. Therefore, they'll get greater degree of Torah reward for carpooling their children to school than they will if they do their own study. This is not to say we'll shortly get into the issue. Should, doesn't mean that they shouldn't learn. It means, though, and the Gemara is saying this is what's going to help them get off the hook in the case of the Sota for up to three years. Their own study, as much as they've learned, the Gemara assumes will never be enough to stave off the effects of the Sota water for this duration of time. It's nice, it's commendable, it's laudatory, whatever the case may be. It's meritorious, but that's not the merit that's going to save them. On the other hand, if they could somehow hook into Torah study of the Mitzvah Osa variety, then they will be saved even though they only come to it by way of the supporting role, what we would call the supporting actress. In the supporting role, that's be deemed sufficient. What about the case of men? Let's say men. Oh, so, that, so to a certain extent, to a certain extent, this is the, this is the Yisachar Zavulun principle. The Yisachar Zavulun principle operates on this premise. Every husband-wife relationship is a kind of a Yisachar Zavulun relationship. And therefore, a husband and a wife, in this sense, is a kind of a partnership. It's a team. It's a Yisachar Zavulun partnership. And she winds up fulfilling a greater role as the Zavulun than if she attempts to be an, a wannabe Yisachar. In the case of a man, it doesn't work that way. But a woman who wants to be a Yisachar will never make it, whereas as a Zvulun, she's already hooked into it. Again, we have to... Instead of going to Drisha, she should find herself a man Chavrusa. A man Chavrusa, why does that help? Because she's enabling him by learning with him. For some reason, co-education wasn't even thought about as a possible solution. Learn with her husband. Rebekah Eger Taka used to learn with his wife. Learn with her husband. That's not a bad idea. I think the notion. If we look at the song of Miriam, the so-called song of Miriam, it begins with Vatan Lohem Miriam, which could be translated to mean, or interpreted to mean that she, in a responsive way, said to them the following. But literally, what does Vatan mean? Vatan means she responded. Not she's the one that began the chorus. It sounds like as if it was a song sung in a chorus fashion. Vatan on Miriam in a chorus fashion. But Vatan on Miriam literally means she answered. She responded. But what exactly was the question? And what exactly is her response that she emphasizes? Sing to the Lord, he's great. He threw the rider with its horse into the sea. What exactly is she answering? What's the question? And why this answer? So I saw a very interesting vort in a safe. What Miriam was answering was the question that the women had. What's the greatness of this exodus to us? The men were singing, we're going to go to Har Sinai, we're going to receive the Torah, we're going to say Nasa Nishma. we have a Torah to receive. That's wonderful. We're being liberated, we're being freed of our shackles of physical and spiritual slavery. We're going to be free people. We're going to learn it. We're going to get the Torah. But to the women, yeah, it's nice that we're free of Egypt, but is this what it's all about? Where does it end? What's in it for us 
equivalent to what the men have. Vatan lohem Miriam. Miriam answered this question. The women go out and they're saying, what do we have to sing about? What do we have to sing about? <coughs> Miriam answers, look what we're singing. Hashem took the horse and its rider and threw it into the sea. And notice that it mentions the horse before the rider. Exactly why is it that the horse should be thrown into the sea on account of what the rider does that's wrong? It's the rider who's the guilty one, the Egyptian. Why do the horses have to be drowned? Why did Hashem throw the horse with its rider into the sea? And he even emphasizes the horse first. The answer, of course, is because the horse is part of the pursuit of the Jewish people. And, okay, obviously the horse is, uh, is a dumb animal. And we, we, don't, we don't give it guilt or credit to a decision-making process. But because the horse serves in the role of an enabler to the rider, therefore it suffers with the rider its own destruction. The same way that the rider is destroyed, the horse, as the enabler, also gets thrown into the sea. Miriam says, this is the answer to your question. The answer is what's in it for us, we're the enablers. If the men go receive the Torah, we are running the carpool, so to speak. If it's true in terms of punishment of a dumb animal, you could imagine how much truer it is in terms of a human being that with, with an act of free will has to serve in an enabling position. As a result, the Gemara actually says they literally divide the reward. Comes out, again, you know, just we'll, we'll discuss it shortly in terms of other aspects to it. But in terms of the actual reward, in terms of what merit she accrues, she winds up splitting equally with her husbands and her children the fact that she's an enabler. She's an enabler, she splits it equally. In fact, the Gemara and Brachas, for all those that remember, the Gemara and Brachas, this goes way back already to the beginning of Brachas, so I can't expect everybody to remember that far back. But if you remember, way back in Brachas, Zion, I believe it is, the Gemara says that greater is the pledge and the promise given to women than it is to men. There's a lot that's said on that. There's a famous morale which is usually misinterpreted and, and mistranslated. I'm not going to go into that. I'm not dealing really with the women's issue per se. But the Gemara does say that women have a greater pledge of reward than men. And it's basically based on this premise. It's easier for a woman to achieve her fulfillment than for the man. Because if she's working and she earns a living and she supports a husband in Kolo, she's already done hers. If she takes the children to school and promotes Torah learning by the children and patiently awaits her husband and encourages them to learn, she's done hers. She already gets this reward. If her husband is in the base of Medrash, drinking coffee and not learning and falling asleep in a shear or something else, he, he has a greater task to achieve his level of obligation. So she gets to her end goal much quicker and much easier and with a greater degree of, of, of lack of um, difficulty than a man. So Hashem gave a greater pledge of reward of Olam Haba to women than he did to men because they could achieve their Olam Haba to a much easier degree with a lesser 
level of difficulty in the man because of her enabling role. You know, I've heard this three times. I still don't understand this. It's okay. You're not going to understand it, after this time. If, her, if, his, if, her sh- if her, she shares his reward, she I know. So if he he's not doing your reward, what is this? No, no, if he's what? not doing it, so then what, what, what reward is there for her to split? Right. The point is she's done hers. Again, this is part of what Hashem said in general, the woman's role is as being that she's an enabler, she has an easier time fulfilling that function than, than the man does. But the point is that it comes out, this is, this, this is something which is very difficult to, to, uh, to relate to nowadays, but ultimately what it's saying in effect is that she has a greater chance and a greater potential of reaching her fulfillment doing this classical role of the enabler then she will by doing it by herself then she'll never get there if she studies and studies and studies she'll never get to the same degree as being an enabler of study for someone that's a mitzvah and the principle is based on the following logical reason that because of these two premises namely number one women aren't obligated number two a person who is not obligated is on a lesser level of reward than a person who is obligated number three the enabler is splits it with the one that does it therefore a woman is better off being an enabler of a mitzvah v'aysa than being the anal mitzvah v'aysa herself where she'll never reach that level in any case this is the first part of the Gemara the Gemara now goes into the machlaikas the only reason this was a kind of a detour what we've been doing till now only to explain the concept of what exactly was their ideal role and their connection to Torah. Now we're going to get into the more, into the practical aspects of should they or shouldn't they actually learn, is it good for them to learn or not. But what we're just dealing with till now is what is their handle on Torah. And and the reason why we have to emphasize it the way we did is because these ideas of an Eina Mitzvah is against current thought. So I had to like dwell on it a little bit. Again, I didn't really dwell on it the way we dwelt on it other times as to why it's so. That requires a whole elaborate discussion as to why it's so that an Eina Mitzvah is less than a Mitzvah But that's the principle. And the other difficult area to understand is the idea of the enabler, which people sometimes have a little difficulty with. And, and th- these are just important points. Once you put it together, you could see that in a classic sense, what their connection to Torah itself is in its ideal form. As to their own learning, let's talk about their own learning now as well. So we said that Ben Azai recommends their learning. Rabbi Eliezer is the one that discourages it. And Rabbi Eliezer again uses very, very sharp words. Let's take a look at the sharp words that he uses. This isn't even half of it. The Yushalmi has the other half and we're not even going to talk about it now. Tysus over there in Saita brings it down. He who teaches his daughter Torah is teaching her Tiflus. Tiflus is either at best translated as as um, frivolity and nonsense. That's at best. The best translation is to say that if you teach your daughter Torah, it's like teaching her nonsense. Or it is teaching her nonsense. To which the Gemara says, Tiflus it's nonsense. It's the equivalent of teaching her nonsense. That's the kinder translation of the Rambam. A more, a harsher definition 
is tiflus literally means lewdness and adultery. He who teaches his daughter Torah is like teaching her to be an adulterer or teaching her promiscuity and lewdness. Stigmora says, Torah is lewdness? No, but it's the equivalent thereof. What does that mean? So, Omar Abavos, he quotes here a Pasik that says that when a person becomes half smart or a little bit of wisdom enters into him, he becomes much more cunning and sly. And as a result, what it's actually saying is that if Torah is misused, then, it, then, then you're better off being ignorant than being knowledgeable. Because if you don't utilize the Torah knowledge properly, you will misuse it and you will abuse it, and the worst things come from that. Again, this is a discussion that is best left for another time, but we know that how true it is that people that have, first of all, we all know that a little knowledge is very dangerous, but there are many people that their approach to Torah is one where they were like, as they say, the devil can quote scripture, and the devil actually is quoting scripture. The, the biggest rye is, I don't want to get into all the gory details now, but Bill Clinton uses the heter of, of the Torah, of what Bia is and all of these things, to say that therefore he could do what he did and, and he looks for legal loopholes to be as promiscuous as he was. And some of it actually came from, from Torah. In the case of Bill Clinton, it's actually from the Torah. Because his friends, before the scandal came, said that he always said that according to the Bible, he did a careful study and a careful reading of the Torah and the Bible. I suspect, this is just my suspicion, that he had some Jewish friends that these discussions went with, and they told him that, yeah, according to the Torah, technically speaking, this isn't that, it's not an act of adultery, and it's, a, you know, and therefore I suspect that he may have gotten from Jewish sources, and according to Jewish sources, it is true. And technically speaking, if you split legal hairs, it is certainly 100% true that he could never be, even though he's being tried for impeachment, but he could never be tried for an act of adultery. This would not be considered adultery. There's no question about that. And he himself says that by studying the Bible, he came to these conclusions. These are statements that he made to colleagues and friends before the scandal. I'm telling you, I read this stuff over a year ago before the scandal broke and I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop but he's been saying this for years that you could get around the loopholes by not this and that and doing it in a way that's technically not an act of Bia and he got it from where? from the Bible that means this is literally pshat that if you learn Torah and you misuse it it's mamish tiflis you, it leads you to a cunning way the simple person doesn't know from Chochmas and he acts in a certain moral upright way it's the person who knows all the dreidels and the knaches and is looking for an out he winds up becoming much worse on account of it and it would have been better off if he knew nothing and just acted on the on the simplest level so again that's just a little bit of a detour but that's what it means that our mimus our mumius the enters the person and he becomes cunning and sly in his promiscuity as Rashi defines it he's able to cover it up and he's able to get around it and he's able to do it in a way that everybody is on is unaware so therefore what Rebeliezer in effect is saying is that since it's not advisable for women to learn let's assume that the reason is because they're incapable of fully comprehending it so then you're doing something terrible by learning with them because you're giving them have finished products that their minds will not be able to deal with it and as a result they're going to misuse it this is the less kind explanation the kinder explanation 
and I'm telling you this is the, I'm just telling you like it is the way the Rambam says it is that oh because since their minds are un are immature in terms of understanding these things therefore they won't understand it and therefore you've taught them a lot of nonsense they won't be able to get anything they're, they're, they're going to take the ideas and it'll be half-baked and half-baked ideas are just not going to do it that's again this is the Gemara and this is the way we pass it. this is the Shulchan Aruch. now again I'm not going to get into possibilities of well maybe that's based on their lack of education then and nowadays <laughs> I'm not going to get into that I will point out just a couple of points the Shulchan Aruch, as well as the Rambam lists this halacha in in two fashions it starts off by saying a woman that studies Torah is rewarded for it although her reward is less than a man's reward because she's an Ena Mitzvah voice as we discussed earlier this is the way the Rambam lists it and the Shulchan Aruch follows the same pattern he first starts off by saying you should know that if a woman studies Torah she will be rewarded for it however her reward is that of a mitzvah of an Eina mitzvah voice which is less than the reward of a mitzvah voice which is a man's study of Torah she's rewarded then the next halacha he says however the sages said don't teach Torah to women to your daughters because it's like teaching them tiflus etc etc Mephoshim grapple with the seeming contradiction the first statement sounds like hey it's a nice thing it's not as it's not as great as Torah study of a person who's obligated but it's still a wonderful thing yet it's being discouraged in the very next sentence it's understood really in the following way and and this is a very crucial point and the reason is because part of the issue that we talked about last week was the innovative nature of what the Chofetz Chaim and Sar Shneer did by making women's education and the question then becomes aren't they violating the Gemara and if they are violating the Gemara on the premise that times are different and require it so where does it end? At what point do we say that oh because nowadays things are different and circumstances are different therefore it's important to make certain kinds of changes so if you're allowed to violate this Gemara then why not any other Gemara? The answer is that the Gemara already has built in to it in the Shulchan Aruch at least you see it more prominently the idea that it's not an across-the-board prohibition per se that a woman or whatever it is cannot study Torah it's forbidden for to study Torah for care on the contrary viewed from the individual's vantage point namely the woman herself that's studying Torah it's a commendable thing it's not eh, it's not the ultimate but it's commendable the statement of the Shulchan Aruch is divided into two kinds of approaches one is viewed from the perspective of the individual woman herself who's studying yes it's commendable the other is viewed as an overall view about how to deal with women studying Torah and they said that since we don't know where it's going to lead to you're better off not doing it however based on this the Mephoshim explained the Drisha the Prisha they explained that if a woman herself shows some promise and potential that her study is going to be is going to be um, advantageous in one form or another then there's no question that she's allowed to do it and she should be encouraged to do it it's only because of this fear that we discourage it in a general way so viewed from the vantage point of the educator or, or the policy makers or of the uh, father one discourages it because of the potential harm 
but viewed from the perspective of a woman that's studying Torah properly, it's still viewed as a commendable act. So therefore, once it's determined that it's not forbidden per se, where the act is an Avera, in which case there's no there's no loophole to an Avera. You can't permit an Avera simply because we deem it advantageous. That's what we said the other day, that once the Torah was given, then there's no exceptions. Before the Torah was given, you had a right to decide, like Yaakov did, is marriage of two sisters in this case, in this exceptional circumstance, good or bad? So then you could say, listen, generally it's no good, but there's always exceptions to the rule. And now it's advisable for me to marry these two sisters. Amram makes an exception and marries his aunt. Even though he kept the Torah generally, he makes an exception. But he's a, he has a right to make an exception because, again, he's an enomit silva He doesn't have the command. Once the command becomes in force and he doesn't have the luxury then of deciding when a mitzvah is good and when a mitzvah is no good, then already no exceptions are permitted. So he can't decide, but here I should do it. So the same thing over here. As long as one views it as a prohibition, so he can't say, but nowadays things are different, and therefore we have to change. He can't change. A prohibition is a prohibition. But if the act itself is not a prohibited act, it's merely something that we view it because of its uh, of its um, effects on society that we see it as being as leading to to negative to negative effects. One then has a right to say, but those negative effects are no longer there. And on the contrary, if we don't educate them, we're going to run into problems. Now, let's let's just finish up what he says over here, and then we'll get to the Chavetz Chaim itself. So therefore, he says. Now let's take a look at the last two lines like the So this is already in addition to the Gemara that the Chofetz Chaim adds. And our sages teach us, in other words, the Paiskim all hold, the that this only applies to Torah Shabalpeh, which is of more detailed of more detailed uh, content. Although it's still not recommended, you are permitted to teach your Torah Shabbat. And even Torah Shabbat, those laws that apply and are necessary for them to know, she certainly is obligated to learn. So, therefore, now we have the following exceptions to the rule. The prohibition, as we've said, is not really a prohibition per se that women aren't allowed to study Torah. On the other hand, it seems to be frowned upon and discouraged. Says the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch and the Chofetz Chaim is saying here that there's still a distinction to be drawn between Torah Shabbat which should be avoided, and Torah Shabbat which does not have to be avoided at all. Furthermore, laws that they have to know anyway certainly was meant for them to learn and to study because they have to know these things. However, if you put all of this together, you get the following approach. Even whatever we're going to do in terms of encouraging women's education, it's always going to have to be with 
consideration to the Gemara that we just learned and to the Allah that we just learned. Namely, that the curriculum that you establish for women is not that it should be identical to men. We've already said last week that Kosomar Leves Yaakov Israel entails a differentiation between men and women's curriculum. And you see that this never changes, that the Gemara itself is already making distinctions between Tarsha Bixav and Tarsha Balpeh. And although we say, but they have to learn what they have to know, yes, but again, it's all based on a need-to-know basis, but it's still generally discouraged. Now, what happens though is, what does it mean what they need to know? It's a very broad loophole that you've opened the door to all kinds of things. It's true. By saying whatever is beneficial for them to know and need to know, especially in the modern context, is something which requires a great deal of deliberation. Certainly the basic halachas, that throughout Jewish history they have to know. They have to know how to, um, how to kasher things. They have to know milk inflation. They have to know basic laws of Shabbos. There's a lot of things that they have to know. Obviously things that they didn't have to know, so they didn't have to be taught. But what about philosophy and Yiddishkeit and Chumash and Rashi and Ramban and these things? Even up until a hundred years ago, when the Or HaShulchan, who was a contemporary of the Chafetz Chaim, was writing about women's learning Torah and, and schools, he says, although he says that traditionally one should assume that they should never even make texts for women, but we trust our women that even though they have texts that they study, they still won't misuse it and misapply it. They're basically studying it to know that which they have to know. In other words, it was always assumed that it wasn't going to be this detailed, give-and-take, lumbus, back-and-forth, Gemara-type, Talmudic study and reasoning. That was always assumed to be the case. Let's now read the Chofetz Chaim's comment on the bottom, which is actually the source for this whole Beis Yaakov thing. Venera says the Chofetz Chaim, and this is, on the one hand, sounds extremely radical and a departure from the accepted halacha, seemingly, but you'll see that it's not. Venera de davke bizmanem shalofoneinu, this was all true during previous generations, where in previous generations people lived in the location of their ancestors and there was family traditions that were carried out from father to son to grandson and all the way down and likewise mothers and daughters it went through the generations and tradition was very strong I mean the the essence of uh, what's it, the fiddler on the roof yes. is that if you're living in a little shtetl in wherever it is in Eastern Europe, tradition. And tradition was strong and it goes through generation after generation. But the moment there's upheaval, and certainly after World War I, even throughout Europe, there was tremendous upheaval. So the moment that there's upheaval and people are no longer living with this sense of strong tradition, <laughs> that people were always accustomed to follow in the traditions of their parents. And, and this is always of paramount importance by Jews. You have questions? Speak to the elders. Speak to the previous generations. Then it made sense to say, Shaloi Tilmoy Torah. 
that it's better that she shouldn't study Torah in an academic, formalized fashion, but rather she should continue in the traditions as absorbed through family, through the home. That's what we talked about last week, when we said from Mayor Shapiro, that Torah was lived and Torah was absorbed and Torah was taught by living it. It was a living Torah, it was life itself, it was breathed in by the home and it was absorbed almost like osmosis, that's the way. Says the Chofetz Chaim, that faced with the situation that Jewish life was stable, of course, Torah will of course become absorbed into the next generations. No one meant that women should be ignorant of Torah, they just meant that they shouldn't study Torah in a formal, textual fashion. They should live Torah and they should absorb Torah through life. That's the, that's the um, approach which is advocated. But nowadays, that the traditions of previous generations have become weakened. The foundations have become weakened. The Chavetz Chaim you're talking about is writing this almost 100 years ago. The There's great upheavals. People are no longer living in their own traditional ancestral homes. And certainly, if you have a secular education, and he even puts it on a much milder level, that if you merely know the language of the surrounding culture, you're going to become influenced by that culture. He's not talking about when you're even going to the schools. Certainly, and certainly, if you wind up going to the schools of the Goyim, and you wind up imbibing the Goyisha culture, so we have to find some sort of a, of a balance to that. The Vadai Mitzvah Rabba, it's a great mitzvah. The Lamda Chumish. Now notice the curriculum. To teach them Chumish. Gam Nevi'im Uksuvim. Tanach. Musre Chazal. Words of Musra of ethical and spiritual inspiration. Kigoyim Misechthus Ovis, like Pirkei Ovos. Sefer Minoros Hamor, Ukedome, and these kinds of works and books. She's Amisetz, for the purpose of ascertaining and affirming by her Inyan Amunaseinu HaKadosha the foundations of our faith. The Lavochi, because if you don't do this, it's very, very probable that they will deviate completely from the way of Hashem, and they will violate the foundations of our faith. In other words, we can now, with this, finally appreciate that which we learned last week. We learned last week both the um, the Ridvaz and Mayor Shapiro. And what did we actually learn? We saw that there was a kind of a resistance and generations went that became lost until they finally came up with this basiak of innovation. And I think someone even questioned how come things deteriorated to such a degree before they did it. Well, we could see it now because traditionally this was the approach and this is the correct approach and the Gemara says to avoid formal teaching and training and to avoid academic studies and therefore they lived it like that they said hey this is what the Torah wants of us we're gonna do it it's only after they saw that something is broken and has to be fixed that you say hey what innovations are permitted and what innovations are necessary and therefore we compared it to the innovation of Yeshua ben Gamla if you're familiar from this week's daf, that Ben Gamla 
was the Kohen Gadol, who in the time of the second base of Mignish, although he was, he, he purchased his office, it was a bribe, he became Kohen Gadol. Yet Chazal praised him for his acts that he did that were uh, beneficial to the Jewish people. And the Mishnah relates how he was praised for for making golden um, lots and the like. He did certain innovations that were commended and were praised by the sages. One of the innovations that he was praised for is the Gemara Baba Basra says that if not for him, Torah would be forgotten by all Jews. He's the one that instituted public education on an elementary school level. So we question, I mean, you needed a person like Yeshua ben Gamal to have thought of it. What did they do before? Torah was ready to be forgotten by Jews and Yeshua ben Gamal was the one that came galloping to the rescue? And what happened before? He was the Lone Ranger. He saved the Jewish people single-handed. Torah was about to be forgotten. What happened before that? And the answer, of course, is that although there were always yeshivas, but the idea that little children should learn Torah in an artificial academic environment is not the ideal. Torah should be lived at in a genuine, sincere, living fashion, certainly when you're a child. And therefore, of course, you have to learn Torah. You have to absorb Yiddishkeit, Yerushimayim. But that's precisely what a Jewish home is supposed to be. Every Jewish home is a kind of a yeshiva. Torah is not studied academically. Torah is lived. And Torah is lived on a 24-hour-a-day basis. Torah is not only lived, you know, once a week, like the guy and they go to church, and the rest of the time, it, Torah has to permeate a home. It has to suffuse the totality of the home. It's breathed in. It's given, it's administered orally, as we had the comparison we saw last week from Mayor Shapiro, where he uses the metaphor of medicine. Torah is an oral medicine, which is taken like a medicine, as a bitter pill, but Torah is also lived and breathed and imbibed through a natural process. When you're young and you're incapable of swallowing bitter medicines, the approach that's used is the home, the atmosphere. You breathe it in. So Torah is learned. Of course it's learned. It's not studied, but it's learned. It's not studied academically, but it is learned. It's learned the way a child learns to walk, the way a child learns to, uh, to ride a bicycle. He doesn't study bicycle riding. He doesn't... Do you ever get these things in the mail or whatever? You have to put something together. And you read the instructions, and it seems so complicated. And, you know, the other day I was reading the instructions of how to put those probes on a thermometer. I mean, it's a page instructions. Put your thumb and your index finger and your forefinger this way. Pull on the tab and hold it like this and like that. And I couldn't figure out what it's all about until you see the probe and you see the thermometer and you can intuitively, you put it in, you pull it off and there you got it. And everybody knows that's the way it's done. But you know what, if you have to describe it to someone on a piece of paper, it seems like this, uh, you know, it's unreal, it's from Mars. Terrences, when you see it, it's, it, one is learning, the other is studying. You learn something, it becomes part of you, you absorb it. You study something academically, it sounds, sounds different. Torah has to be studied, there's books, we have texts, but it has to be learned. And the idea of taking children away from the home learning experience, from the home environment, and artificially placing them in a place where they're going to study Torah academically, that was an idea that they obviously would have resisted, and rightly so, until Yeshua ben Gamal said that we're going to be losing the baby with the bathwater. Literally, the baby is being lost. And therefore, what are we going to do? We're going to try to stick to the old methods 
No longer our fathers teaching Torah. No longer our homes learning centers. We have to do something else. Therefore, we need elementary school education. Innovation. But it's an obvious once we see what the problems were. Says the Chofetz Chaim, women in the late 19th century and early 20th century was a disaster. And as we pointed out last week, using the metaphor of Mayor Shapiro, if a home is porous, the walls are porous, the windows are open, the door is open, then that method is not working anymore. If women go out and get secular education, and you're going to give them no formal Jewish education, so you're creating an imbalance in their own minds. They're becoming sophisticated, they're becoming educated, but Torah, they should be ignorant. That certainly doesn't make sense. That they should become educated, sophisticated, and know about everything else, and be able to quote Shakespeare and Chaucer and all of these things, and know philosophy, but not know elementary Yiddishkeit, the animamins. That can't be. So we have to teach them with a, an eye to the curriculum to reinforcing these things. So now the Chafetz Chaim, of course, had a pretty modest curriculum. Chumish, Tanakh, Musr, and the following. Perhaps that's allowed to be updated. That's allowed to be updated based on the sophistication of women and what they're going to be faced with in the world. Obviously, in those days, even the Chafetz Chaim, which he considered to be you know, that the, the home was open to all kinds of influences. They learned Russian language. If they learned Russian language, they might see a newspaper. But this is before television, before daily newspapers and weekly magazines and all kinds of Narishkeit books and magazines and more books and more magazines and, and print media and electronic media and internet. I mean, you're dealing with so much that's coming in, so you have to reinforce it with so much Torah content. However, Again, the eye is to the is to the purpose. The eye is to the goal. We're goal oriented. It's not a question of an agenda where we have to equate the two and have an equal curriculum. For care, we see very clearly that the obligation of men is totally different than the obligation of women. And as such, men have called Even if you make a base Yaakov, it's Somar. Whatever Somar entails, there are certain feminine aspects to it in terms of speaking softly, speaking in a more general level. You asked before what the Somar entails. Part of what the Somar entails is the idea of what he calls the Musr. In other words, you teach them, yeah, you teach them Pirkei office. you teach them the Gemaras and the statements of Chazal that are more inspirational, that are going to fortify them. And yes, maybe now they have to be sharpened. And yes, maybe now they have to be philosophized. The goal over there is the Somar. Ultimately, you're trying to stave off the effects of society and the roughness that society is going to inject anyway with some sort of an equivalency of Torah. It's still called Somar Leves Yaakov, a different form of a curriculum. Sagelim Nesrael, men have to learn Torah. In fact, this is going to lead us now into the very next thing. Take out your Mishpatim, and we're going to take a look at the Beis Halevi. Second base of Mikdash, towards the end of the second base of Mikdash. The last, well, for the last hundred or so years, maybe 150 years. The, the Matan Torah that we had last week's Parsha in Yisro 
is continued in Parshas Mishpatim at the end of Mishpatim. It's interesting that the story of the revelation of Sinai is divided into two parshios, two different sections. One is in Yisro, one is in Mishpatim. In Yisro, we find the expression that the Jews use that they say Nasa. In Mishpatim is where we find Nasa Nishma. It's interesting one could possibly divide the two parshios, or on page 188, the two parshios was one being Matan Torah and the other being Kabbalah Torah. Matan Torah is God's imposition of Torah on us. Kabbalah's Torah is what Jews do to receive the Torah. God gives the Torah, God gifts the Torah. Matan Torah is a Nesina, is a giving, it's a gift. Kabbalah Torah is a receivership. It's what we do to receive the Torah. In the Matan Torah, Hashem lifts the Torah over the, the har over their heads and so to speak forces it on them. Kabbalah Torah is Nasa Vinishma. Parshas Yisro, there's no Nasa Vinishma, just Nasa. In Parshas Mishpotim, we already have Nasa Vinishma. Now, uh, let's, in order to, to try to shorten things, we'll go straight to the Beis HaLevi. We'll go straight to the Beis HaLevi. Vayikach Sefer Abris. It's on the left. So we know that the Jews, by saying Nasev and Nishma, reached a high level that was considered of an angelic, of an angelic level. The Gemara and Shabbos, for those of you that remember this Gemara and Shabbos, that, be, that on account of the fact when the Jews preceded Nasa before Nishma, in that merit, Yordu Samach Rivo Shamalachi Ashores, Vikoshu Lucholechot Misro, Snake, Sorm Echot, Keneged Nasa, Bechot, Keneged Nishma. Angels came down from heaven and gave each Jew two crowns one crown corresponding to Nasa, one crown corresponding to Nishma. The following question. The Gemara does not begin by saying when the Jews made the statement of Nasa and Nishma, they received two crowns, one for the Nasa, one for the Nishma. What it says in the Gemara instead is when when they preceded Nasa before Nishma, they got two crowns. The implication is that for the mere utterance of the Nasa and the Nishma, they're not given two crowns. It's only because of the nature of putting Nasa before Nishma that they receive two crowns. But if that's the case, why two crowns? Why not one crown? If the Nasa and Nishma per se don't deserve the two crowns, it's the Hikdimu that deserves the crown. That's one act. If you say that the Nasa is one act and Nishma is the second act, so you get one crown for this, one crown for that. But if you say that it's not the Nasa and the Nishma as two separate crowns for two separate deeds, but it's the one act of Higdimu Nasa and Nishma, so that's one laudatory act which deserves one crown. So what does the Gemara mean when it says that by preceding Nasa before Nishma, by preceding Nasa before the Nishma, therefore they got two crowns. It seems to be one good act one laudatory act 
that's getting meriting two crowns. What does it mean? Let's just read it inside. What does it mean, Bishoshekdimu versus Bishosha Omru when they said it? Nasanishma. Umukach, clearly, the Rak Ali Dei Hakdomo Zachulani Shneksarm, that was only because they proceeded by being Makdim Nasanishma that they received two crowns. The Yesh Lov and Hech Toli Bakdomo, the question then becomes why do the two crowns come on account of a Kedima, of a Hakdomo? Vanirli the Yuvan Gamkein Lomomiso Nasev Nishma Blo Nishma Vnasev. He will therefore explain what does it mean Nasa before Nishma rather than first Nishma then Nasa. Why did the Jews say it in that way? He says like this. He quotes first the Zayar. Dinei Isa b'Zayar Kadosh Nasa b'Uvdin Tovin. Nasa means good deeds. Nishma b'Pizgomin Doraisa. Nishma means studying Torah. So the Zohar explains Nasa corresponds to deeds to doing. Nishma corresponds to listening to hearing. One corresponds to mitzvahs, good deeds. The other corresponds to Torah study itself. So he explains what does that mean. So he says like this. Harei the Nasa have al Nasa means acceptance of mitzvah performance. The nishma have the kabbalas Nishma means an acceptance of study of the Torah. That means Jews accepted two things. They said we will do mitzvahs and we will study Torah. They made two separate individual acceptances. The hinei However, it is quite obvious. The limud hatayra hu mishnei He said like this: All Torah study can be understood in the following two ways. Two aspects. One aspect of Torah study is in order to learn, in order to know what to do. If you don't learn, you won't know. If you won't know, you won't do. So in order to do, you have to know. In order to know, you have to study and learn. The Pasuk says, an ignoramus can't be a pious individual. You can't be a chosid, a pious person, if you're ignorant, ignorant people don't know what to do. Now, if that's the case, we could understand women's obligation in Torah study. Because obviously they're going to have to study anyway. This is even before the modern Beis Yaakov movement. They'll have to know Torah enough to be able to perform the Torah. If they're not going to know, how could they do? And women are obligated equally with men in practically all 613 mitzvahs. The difference between men and women's obligation is really minor in terms of the total number. In terms of the 613 mitzvahs, the 365 negative mitzvahs, they are 99% obligated to equally with men in the 365 negative. And even the majority of the 248 positive, they have the obligation. If that's the case, they're equal to men in terms of their obligation in most of the Torah. They obviously have to know what to do. So therefore, Torah study is mandatory because without it, you won't know what to do. So that's already predicated on study, fulfillment. So women certainly have that obligation. So even when we say women aren't obligated in Torah study, they certainly have to study the mitzvahs that they have to perform. Okay. 
this is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why women do make a bracha on the Torah in the morning. Why do women make the birchas Torah in the morning? If they don't have the obligation, how could they say Asher Kedishonu bin Sosav Tzivonu? So it's really into Machlaikas. Some Rishonim hold, they don't make the bracha. We Paskin and Ashkenaz, they Paskin like those Rishonim, that the women do make the bracha. The question is why? One of the reasons given is precisely what we just, we've seen, that since they have the obligation to know, to do the mitzvahs, so they have the obligation to study that which they have to learn in order to be able to perform. So that's clear. What then is the difference between men's learning and women's learning? Men have the following difference and advantage over women in terms of obligation for Torah study. And that's the following. When women learn, they're not fulfilling with their learning an actual deed of mitzvah. In other words, every mitzvah has to be understood that the actual performance of the mitzvah is in itself the mitzvah. It's not the goal per se. Yes, we eat matzah in order to remember the great wonders of Hashem taking us out of Egypt. And yes, the goal of eating a matzah is to remind ourselves of what Hashem did for us. But it's the act of eating matzah itself which is the act of the mitzvah that we call the mitzvah. You eat the matzah, you've done the mitzvah. Likewise, you put tefillin on for reasons. But the act of wearing the tefillin is the act of mitzvah itself. When a person studies Torah, he studies in order to know how to perform. That's usually referred to as a heksher mitzvah, as a preparatory phase to the mitzvah. Let's take an example. You build a sukkah to sit in the sukkah. The mitzvah is yeshiva sukkah, sitting in the sukkah. The preparatory phase is the building of the sukkah. It's not the mitzvah, it's the preparatory phase, because without it, you can't sit in the sukkah. It's called heksher we had the Gemara and Shabbos, a whole parak, almost a whole parak, devoted to the issue of if you're allowed to be Mechal Shabbos to do the mitzvah of bris milah, are you allowed to be Mechal Shabbos to do the preparatory things for the mitzvah of bris milah, such as sharpening the knife, cooking up the water, and these kind of things. In other words, is it only the mitzvah that allows you to override Shabbos, or does the Heksher mitzvah also allow the overriding of the of the Shabbos command. So it's Machlaikis in the Tanoim, we Paskin, that only a mitzvah of Mila overrides Shabbos, not the Heksher mitzvah. So mitzvahs come in terms of the actual mitzvah and the preparatory nature of the mitzvah, which is a preparatory phase before the actual mitzvah is done. It's, it's commendable, but it's not the mitzvah. If a person has a lulav and esrik, the actual mitzvah is the taking of the lulav and the esrik and putting them together and shaking it holding it, whatever. The preparatory thing is binding the esrig or not, the, the lulav with its or the hadasim and narovs. That's preparatory. Preparatory is not the mitzvah. It's preparatory to a mitzvah. When a person studies Torah in order that he should perform a mitzvah, is he merely preparing himself for a mitzvah? Or is the act of learning itself an act of mitzvah? Is studying about tefillin in itself an act of putting on tefillin? Or is it like it sounds? 
Yeah, the mitzvah is putting on the tefillin. Studying how to put on tefillin is like building a sukkah. Sitting in the sukkah is the mitzvah. Building the sukkah is the preparatory phase, the heksher mitzvah. So sitting in the sukkah is the mitzvah. Building a sukkah is heksher mitzvah. Shockling a lulav and is the mitzvah. Binding it is a heksher mitzvah. Wearing tefillin is the mitzvah. Studying for it, what is it like writing? Preparing the mitzvah? Or is it an act of mitzvah itself? This, he says, is the difference between men and women's obligation for Torah study. Women have, as we've seen, a by-need-to-know basis of the study. They study in order to know. They have to study. Because otherwise, they're not going to know what to do. So therefore, they have to learn some Torah in order to know what to do. But their act of learning is not in itself an intrinsic act of mitzvah. It's a preparatory phase to their mitzvah, which is that they want to know. You learn in order to know. You don't learn in order to learn, generally. You learn in order to know. When a guy goes to medical school, and he goes to college, four years, he has a pristine act of, of uh, devotion, but rather to become a doctor and a lawyer in order to practice medicine and law. So the practice of medicine and law is the goal. The study for it is merely a preparatory phase. Do we view Torah the same way? The purpose of all Torah study is so you should know how to do the Avodim, the base of Migdash, so you should know how to daven, make brachas, put on tefillin. Is that all it is? Or is the act of study itself an act of devotion and mitzvah equal or even greater than other acts of mitzvah? We hold, we hold, it's clear from everywhere, that act of Talmud Torah is in itself an act of mitzvah. A person that doesn't study on a certain day is like missing putting on film that day. If you didn't study Torah one day, that day is bereft of the mitzvah of Torah the same way that it's bereft of film. In which case, it actually means that if you if you study about film, that in itself is a mitzvah in itself before you've even approached the tefillin and let's say you don't own a pair of tefillin study about tefillin, you've done the mitzvah not the mitzvah of wearing tefillin possibly even that, that's the, that's the other midrashim that say that you get credit for the study of a certain mitzvah as if you've done it provided that you have no other option so the act of study contains within it two components it contains within it the component of preparation preparatory phase and it in itself is inherently an act of mitzvah. Women only have one component. To them, all study is preparatory. It's preparatory to obtaining the knowledge which they need to be able to be better Jews. And therefore, Torah is purely utilitarian. It's purely a means to an end. Torah study for women is a means to an end. It's utilitarian. It's preparatory. What is the goal? The goal is to be knowledgeable Jews, to be able to perform the mitzvahs of knowledgeable Jews. Men have an additional dimension to the study of Torah, above and beyond preparing yourself to be a good Jew. Yes, you have an obligation to be a good Jew, and Torah prepares you to be a good Jew. But Torah study is inherently a mitzvah, even not viewed as preparation, but inherently. It's intrinsically mitzvah. Women don't have that. Now he explains with this the following. 
Therefore, he says that the notion belimudam ain't on the kaim ashum mitzaseh. They're not fulfilling an actual mitzvah when they learn. It's merely a preparatory phase, an intermediate stage, or one could view it as a um, means to the ultimate goal of mitzvah performance. Learning for women is a means to the goal of kiyum ha-mitzvahs. It's not an end in itself. Learning for women is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. By men, if you would spend your entire life doing nothing more than learning, you fulfill the goal. You've already re- reached an end. It's an ultimate goal in and of itself. Learning is in and of itself an intrinsic, an inherent mitzvah like putting on tefillin. Therefore, there are two components in the study that men do. One as a means to an end, a movoy la mitzvahs, an end in itself of mitzvah performance. With this, he explains the Gemara and Menachas, and I'm going to try to just be brief to put it together. Where the Gemara and Menachas, the Tzadik test, says how Ben Doma asked his uncle Rabbi Shmuel. He says, I know the entire Torah. Is it okay for me to stop studying Torah and to go study Greek wisdom? And Rabbi Shmuel answered him that even though you know the entire Torah, if you want to study Chochmas Yivonis, find yourself a time that's not part of the day or night because the obligation to study Torah is day and night. What is the back and forth dialogue? It goes like this. He was assuming that I study the Torah the purpose of my study is goal-oriented, to know. I know it. I'm there. I've reached it. I got my PhD. Do I still have to go back to graduate school? I mean, is there any point in going back and regurgitating that which I know? I already know everything about medicine. I know everything about law. I'm the Supreme Court Justice. I'm the head of the Supreme Court and everything else. Is there any point in going to law school? just to chazer over what I already know. Yes, if there's new information, new knowledge, there's a point. But if there isn't, what's the point? So Ben Dama was saying, I've already learned it all. Could I go off and do other things? Says Rabbi Shmuel, well, first of all, it's probably obviously true that you didn't learn it all, otherwise you'd know better. But even if you did, but even if you did, it doesn't matter. Torah study is not viewed as a means to an end, that you've achieved the end of knowledge. Torah study is an act of mitzvah in itself, and therefore Vigisa Bayom Velaila is still applicable. And if you want to find yourself and give it up, find yourself part of the the day that's not part of the day or the night, because Torah study permeates the entire day and night. That's what he answered him. So therefore he says that if the obligation of Torah study was for the goal of Kiyuma mitzvahs, he did it since he knows the Torah. Because anything that you're doing is a preparatory phase, once you don't need it. You discard You don't have to do it any more than what's needed for the purpose that, that was intended. However, if you have the obligation because it's an inherently ob- obligatory act for Limanat Torah, so then there's no way of ridding yourself from it. With this, he explains in Nasev and Nishma. He says, if Klal Yisrael would have said 
if Klaisol would have said Nishma Venasa. What would Nishma Venasa have meant if they would have said it in that order? What it would have meant is the following. We will study Torah and we will do it. Well, that's pretty logical. Without study, you can't perform. So it would have implied that they never accepted the Torah as an independently valuable act of study. If they would have said, we will listen and we will do, they would have sounded like any other law school student. They would have sounded like any other student of medicine. If the Jews would have said Nishma before the Nasa, they would have sounded like any other college student, which is, I have a goal, I'm willing to do the Torah, I'm going to study and listen and hear, so that I will be able to do So if the Jews would have said Nishma before the Nasa, it would have shown a total misunderstanding or lack of understanding of what the goal of Torah study is all about. It would have only been utilitarian, it would have only been a means to an end, it would have been, yes, Hashem, we want to be doctors of Torah law, we want to get our PhD in Talmud, I'm going to get our PhD in Torah study and in that, and therefore we will go to graduate school and law school and medical school. It's, it's utilitarian, it's a means to an end. So if you have Nishma before the Nasa, then it's understood that the Nishma is for the purpose of Nasa. That's why you're saying Nishma. Nishma in order to be Nasa. Yeah, as we're saying, well, they get the Nasa and Nishma as enablers, so they still split half of it. Again, that's Vatan Lo and Miriam. This goes back to what the women complained. They said, hey, this whole shear is all for the men. What do we get out of it? Answers Miriam, Sus Viroch you play the same role because you're the Sus. <laughs> okay, you're the Sus, so you play the same role. But even in this. But again, that's why if they study Torah on their own, they're going to be lacking this whole point. They're better off and get greater merit being enablers of a true Nasa Nishma than doing it on their own when it's not a true Nasa Nishma. But in any case, and everyone. So therefore, Nishma before Nasa implies the acceptance of mitzvahs, not the acceptance of the yoke of Torah. They, yes, they're forced to learn in order to perform. And therefore, Nishma would have only been viewed as an intermediary phase, as a means to the end of the Nasa. Nasa becomes the Tachlis, Nishma becomes the Movo, the means. And therefore, they would have only made one acceptance. In effect, they would have said, we're accepting the Torah's mitzvahs. And yes, we'll study to get to that point. Therefore, by saying Nasa alone, that would have already implied Nishma. You don't need to say the word Nishma. If you say Nishma before the Nasa, then Nishma becomes the means to the end, which is the Nasa. By saying Nasa alone, you've already incorporated this Nishma into it. Because since it's impossible to do a Nasa without this elementary Nishma, without the prerequisite Nishma, by saying Nasa, you're automatically incorporating a kind of a Nishma in it. Every Nasa automatically contains the Nishma of a Nasa. Not Nasa the Nishma, but every Nasa in and of itself already contains in it Nishma of a Nasa. As soon as you said Nasa, you've already said Nishma of a Nasa. I'll give you an example. The father asked the son, my son, what do you want to be? I want to be a doctor. That's all you got to say. 
You don't gonna say, well, I'm gonna go to medical school and then I'm gonna become an intern and then I'm gonna become a doctor. It's all said. I'm gonna become a doctor. Being a doctor means I'm going to medical school. You don't have to say anymore. NASA already contains a nishma. This aspect of nishma. Every NASA contains in it. How am I going to do it unless I learn it? Obviously, I'm saying that I'm going to learn it and study it in order to know it, in order to perform it, in order to do it. Therefore, if they would have said nishma v'nasa, it would have been the same thing. By saying nasa, they've already said nishma. Now the question is, so what's the additional nishma after the nasa? Clearly, the additional nishma is not there in order to elaborate on the nasa because that's a prerequisite to the NASA anyway. This Nishma is an additional dimension to the study of Torah. That's why the Zohar says, NASA means acceptance of the mitzvahs. Nishma means acceptance of Torah study. When they said NASA and Nishma, they made two acceptances. They made the acceptance of mitzvahs, they made the acceptance of Torah study. Now the Beis HaLevi answers his original question. The question was, they got two crowns. One for the Nasa, one for the Nishma. So why does the Gemara just say they got the two crowns? One for the Nasa, one for the Nishma. Why does it say when they preceded Nasa to the Nishma, then they got the two crowns? If that's the case, they should only get one crown. But they only did one laudable act of preceding Nasa to Nishma. Explains the Beis Alevi, based on what he's explaining, that no, you need both components. By preceding the Nasa before the Nishma, therefore they indicated that there's two different acceptances. One is the acceptance of Nasa with its subordinate Nishma, and then there's the other independent, pure Nishma, Nishma of Torah studies, two acceptances. So therefore the Gemara says, when the Jews preceded Nasa before the Nishma, that's when they got two crowns. That's when they got the two crowns of Nasa and of Nishma independently. If they wouldn't have preceded it, they would have only gotten one crown for Nasa. If they would have only said Nishma of Nasa or Nasa, one crown. And therefore saying Nasa of Nishma in itself isn't enough. It's the preceding of Nasa and Nishma showing two acceptances. Therefore there's a Nasa and a Nishma, two crowns. We can now go back and understand the idea of women's learning. Women's learning is very, very much goal-oriented. And the goal here doesn't necessarily have to mean merely mitzvah performance. It means to be a good Jew. You have to learn Torah to be a good Jew. But you have to learn Torah in addition to that. You have to learn Torah because you have to learn Torah. One of the major complaints that people say is that, um, what do you mean, uh, a girl can't learn Gemara like a boy? And most of these, these co-ed schools, the girls know as much as the boys, and what do the boys get out of it? They're also not getting anything out of it. The truth be told, many of those boys are not getting anything out of it. They're not. They've been better off learning not Gemara, but to learn Musr, to learn Halacha, to learn basics. They should learn basics. They should really be learning what the girls should be learning. The only thing is that with men, there's an obligation for Torah study for its own sake, whether it's going to lead you anywhere or not. A yeshiva is structured to teach Torah because Torah is Torah. We're learning Yuma because the act of learning Yuma is a mitzvah. We're learning Yuma. We learn brachas, we learn Shabbos, we learn Erevin, we learn Shkolem, uh, we learn Psachim, we learn Shkolem, we learn Yuma. Why? It's true. We benefit in terms of our Judaism and mitzvah performance by learning brachas and Shabbos and some of Erevin. What are we getting out of Shkolem and Yuma in terms of our mitzvah performance? Not much. Not much. 
What do we gain from in terms of becoming better Jews? Yeah, the knowledge does help us become better Jews, that's true. In a certain indirect way, it's beneficial. But primarily, why are we doing it? Because it's a mitzvah to learn Torah. That's Nasev and Nishma, says the Beis Levi. The Nishma means we accept it upon ourselves to learn Torah. Women don't have that. Women don't have that. Therefore, by them, Torah study is merely utilitarian. But there's a lot there. There's a lot that they have to know. How to make brachas, how to keep Shabbos, how to make Pesach. So what do we learn? Brachas, Shabbos, Erevin, Sochem. Yeah, they got to know how to make brachas. They got to know how to daven. They got to know how to keep Shabbos and how to make an Erev Tchumen or an Erev Tavshilin. They got to know those things. And they got to know how to make Pesach. Check for Chometz and eat the Matzah and the Seder. They got to know all that stuff. Shkolim, Yuma, there's no point in teaching them. Likewise, when you're goal-oriented, so you think to yourself, I have a goal. And yes, it's true what the Chofetz Chaim has said, that times are different. And times are even now different more than then. And therefore, maybe we have to teach them more and more. But if we're viewing it as Kosomar Leves Yaakov, Vesageid Yisrael, as two separate entities, and two separate approaches, and two separate directions and goals that we have, then we're going to have curriculum that's tailor-made to what we're trying to do. Not to a modern feminist agenda, but to the needs of the modern Jewish woman. What are her needs? Her needs are to know Torah and mitzvahs, and that she should become a Yerei Shemayim. she should fear heaven, and a good Jew, and a knowledgeable Jew. Yeah, let's create a curriculum that'll, that'll promote that. But now that, oh, she has to learn Bava Metziah, and she has to learn Shor Shinoga and Tam and Mood, why? I mean, why? Because, because the boys are learning it. No. The boys themselves don't need to know about Tam and Mood, other than the fact Nasim and Nishma, like the Beis Halevi says, they have to learn Torah. Women don't have to do that. What they have to do is they have to know to become good Jewish mothers, good Jewish wives, good Jewish women, good people. And for that, there's a lot to learn. Let's tailor our curriculum to that. That's also not the ideal. The ideal would have been before Yeshua ben Gamu, even the boys would have been learning at home first. Girls certainly should imbue the Torah of Beis Yaakov. Now that we have to create formalized institutions, schools, where they're structured and they're instructed and they study and it's academic and it's all artificial in a sense, we have no choice. As the Chofetz Chaim says, we have no choice. So we do it. But what are we doing with it? We're still trying to recreate as closely as possible the Koisoymar Leves Yaakov, the Jewish home. That's what we're trying to recreate. We're not trying to make men and women... Yeah, they'll have their Nasev and Ishma if they enable their husbands, if they enable their children. If they enable their children, they enable their husbands, they'll have the Nasev and Ishma. But their own Nasev and Ishma, that's a feminist agenda that they don't have. They're better off enabling husbands and enabling children than doing their own pristine, pure Torah study. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't learn. Of course they should learn. Of course they should study. Why? Because they have to. Because otherwise they're going to become knowledgeable in every other Narishkite in the world other than Torah. And that's no good. They have to learn Torah. They have to know Torah. They have to have Torah ideals and Torah hashkafas and philosophies and all of these things they have to have. Why? Because they need that to be good Jews. But not that they should learn in order to be the same as, as their brothers or the same as their husbands. Men learn, women... No, that's not what it's all about. Everybody has to learn. Everybody has to learn. Especially nowadays. 
but it's not because the men learn, therefore the women have to learn. Because they learn this, therefore they have to learn that. Everything has to be even, Stephen divided. There's division. But the division is Susvaroich by Ramavayam. The division is because of the enabling process. That's where the division The Gemara says, Miloy Palgin Bahadayu. Does do we not then divide it with them? That's the Gemara in Saita. The Gemara in Saita says that on account of their enabling, Miloy Palgin Bahadayu. We do divide it. You want it even and divide it equally, there is an equal division. The equal division is Miloy Palgin Bahadayu. They're enablers and supporters. There's an equal division. In fact, with this we could understand the second answer of the Mechilta of the Medish Rabbah that we learned in the beginning. The Medish Rabbah asks the question, We've elaborated on the fact that the curricula for men and women and the methods of teaching are all different. But one of the questions that the Medish asks is, so why were the women approached first? Why them first? And the Medrash gave three answers. One is Shem Mizdarzo is the mitzvahs. Women are generally more enthusiastic in mitzvah performance, more diligent in that respect. Secondly, Sheman Higois as B'nai and the Torah, that they bring their children to Torah. Well, why should that mean that they should be approached first? But according to what we're understanding, the enablers are always the ones that are approached first. Sus v'roch v'aromavayom. The horse is mentioned even before the rider. Sus v'roich v'aromavayom. Rather than roichev v'sus, it's sus v'roich The enabler is mentioned first. The Gemara refers to it. It's not the mouse, it's the mouse hole. That's the main thief. The thief is what enables the mouse to steal the cheese. It's not the mouse, it's the mouse hole that enables it. Even the third answer of the Medrash that says that by mentioning Adam, by giving the command to Adam first, and only then was Chava commanded, she brought about the downfall of the entire world. That means as the enabler, she was also given the power to actually bring about the downfall of all of mankind with her enabling abilities as a support. Therefore Hashem says, I have to first go to the support. I have to first go to the Akeres Habayis, to the mainstay and the support of the home, and only then could I approach the men. Women have to be approached first. And the second terrace of the Medush actually says that. What's going to be the guarantee for Torah survival, for the continuity of the Jewish people? Continuity, of course, is a very major issue nowadays. We always hear about the continuity crisis. What's going to guarantee the continuity of the Jewish children? What's going to guarantee the continuity of the Jewish religion and people? The children. But for that you need education of children, proper rearing of the children, and that's the women. They're the Akeris Abais, the mainstay of the home. They're the ones that bring the children. They're the enablers and the supporters of Torah. They're the support structure of the Torah. They're the enablers of husbands to learn. They're the enablers and supporters of the children to learn. Therefore, they get approached first. So not only is it that that we divide the spoils of Torah study equally with them and they have equal merit like a mitzvah v'oisa. Not only do they get equal merit like a mitzvah v'oisa 
even though they don't study Torah themselves, but because they're the supporters of Torah, they get equal merit. But like the Gemara in Brochus Daf Yudzayin says, They have a greater promise of reward and a greater pledge of reward because it's easier for them, as the Maral says, to get to that point. Because they are the supporters, therefore they're approached first. They're actually approached first for that reason. The support, the enablers get approached first, and they divide the spoils and the reward equally. So what do we have from all of this? Yes, it's true that women should, could, and are supposed to learn Torah. But the Torah that they're supposed to learn, the Torah that they're encouraged to learn, is with a different goal, with a different purpose. They should be encouraged to learn Torah. But it's not the same Torah as the Torah of men. And yes, it's true that not only should they be encouraged to learn Torah and must they learn certain type of Torah, but all the Torah that they learn ultimately they'll get reward for. If not as a mitzvah voice, then as a mitzvah, as an anal mitzvah voice. So therefore, what we see is a number of things. Women that learn Torah are rewarded like an anal mitzvah voice. That's one point. A second point is that they were always, we Paskin, that they were always commanded and obligated to learn the Torah that's applicable to them. And as we would now describe it, according to the base Halevi's definition, that's part of the NASA process. Part of the NASA is an automatic incorporation of the obligation to learn. If you want to become a doctor, you must go to medical school. Women have to be good Jews. That implies and it entails a certain amount of learning. So as soon as women said, NASA, we want to be good Jews, that automatically entails a certain amount of learning. So therefore we have two aspects so far. One, that all Torah that they learn is an Eino Mitzvah Vaisa. They're rewarded like an Eino Mitzvah Vaisa. There is reward for such a thing. It's still meritorious. Number two, they are expected to learn the Torah that they need on a kind of utilitarian basis, or they need for to be good Jews. Number three, due to the to the modern circumstances, where women are exposed to so many bad influences in society, came the poison, like the Chofetz Chaim, and encouraged Sar Schneer to create a Beis Yaakov system of formalized, institutionalized Jewish education to stave off the effects, to the ill effects, the deleterious effects of society and culture. And therefore, on that account, they also have to learn. All it boils down to is, to be a good Jew, you have to be imbued with Torah. And to the degree that you're exposed to society, to that degree you're going to have to learn more and more Torah. So these are three aspects to women's learning Torah, that all their Torah, anyway, is meritorious as an as an Eino Mitzvah Secondly, they're obligated always to learn things that are applicable and necessary for themselves. Thirdly, based on modern society and situations, and because of the challenges that we're faced with in today's society, they have to fortify themselves with Torah in order to be good Jews. The amount of Torah and the type of Torah 
that they need in order to fortify themselves, that's something which has to be deliberated on with, with, with great understanding, with wisdom, because it is something which changes from country to country, location to location, and society to society, as well as generation to generation. So yes, it's possible that they have to learn a more sophisticated Torah curriculum now due to the general sophistication of their secular education. But when all of this is put together, we're still left with the basic understanding that Kosomar Leves Yaakov is ultimately different than the Sagei Levnei Yisrael. It's not the same, it's not equal, it's not equivalent, it's not a similar curriculum it's Kosomar Leves Yaakov, the Sagei Levnei Yisrael. A base Yaakov is one thing, a yeshiv is something else. It was never meant to be co-educational for a variety of reasons, besides the obvious reasons why it shouldn't be co-educational. Besides the obvious, even the actual learning is a different learning. It's a different curriculum. It's different things that are expected of them. Yes, there was a heter by many gedolim to allow for co-education in certain unavoidable circumstances. They always recommended separate education of much especially that you should have separate education from the youngest possible age. But certainly in the younger years where anyway the Kosomar Leves Yaakov, the Loshan Rako and the Roshe Prokim could to a certain extent be applied to young children, young boys as well as young girls equally so in the younger years, they did allow, when necessary, co-education. But ultimately, the goal is not to teach the same Torah to boys as you do to girls. It's a different Torah. And we understand it much better with the Beis HaLevi. Because as the Beis HaLevi explains to us, based on the Zohar, Nasev and Nishma were two Kabbalahs. It was a Kabbalah to perform mitzvahs as well as its accompanying learning. And it was an acceptance to learn Torah for Torah's own sake. Torah learning, therefore, is subdivided into two components. Torah learning for the purpose of knowledge, to know what to do, to know the mitzvahs, and Torah learning for its pure sake of pure, unadulterated Torah learning, lishma, and that's its own mitzvah and its own justification. You learn Torah to know, and you learn Torah merely to learn Torah. It's its own mitzvah. And not only is it its own mitzvah, but it was its own Kabbalah Torah. During Kabbalah Torah itself, there were two acceptances. There was a Kabbalah of Kiyum HaMitzvah, says the Zohar, which was the Nasa, which that was a Kabbalah of Kiyum HaMitzvah. And there was a separate Kabbalah to learn Torah, and that's the Nishma. That, says the Zohar, and that's what the Beis HaLevi explains. Because there are two Kabbalahs, there are two crowns. Women only have the Talmud Torah that's incorporated into the Nasa. Since they have to be good Jews and perform mitzvahs, they must know, they have to know. In order to know, they must learn to a certain extent. But that's part of the Nasa. They don't have the Nishma of the Talmud Torah Lishma, of inherent Torah study for its own sake. With this focus in mind, it becomes quite evident what kind of curriculum we make and what our purpose in structuring a curriculum for girls is about. It's not Nishma. It's not Talmud Torah for its own sake. It's that they should become good Jews. It's the Kiyuma Mitzvahs. 
Of course, part of Kiyom HaMitzvah is to have the right Hashkafas, to have the right ideological perspective of a Jew, to have the right ethics and the right morals of a Jew, to have the right character traits of a Jew. Obviously, to be a good Jew entails more than just rote actions of Kiyom Maisa HaMitzvah. To be a good Jew, certainly nowadays, requires a certain amount of an understanding of the essentials of Yiddishkeit, of what it means to be a good Jew, the ethics, the morality, the characteristics, the midos, the ideologies, the philosophies, the hashkafas. All this goes into what it means to be a good Jew. All of these things are required for women as well. And therefore they will have to study ethics and morals besides mitzvahs themselves. They will have to study certain Torah concepts and philosophies and ideologies and how to stave off the effects of a culture that's so decadent and so heretical. There's much that they could learn, there's much that they should learn. What is clear though is that our eye is not to equalizing their curriculum with that of of boy of their male counterparts. Therefore we structure their curriculum automatically differently. And therefore in effect we're, we end off with where we began, with Kosomar Leves Yaakov in one direction, the Sagei Levnei Yisrael, a different curriculum. Kosomar Leves Yaakov is Roshe Prokim, general principles, fundamentals, and the things that the Chofetz Chaim himself says were important to maintain good Yiddish techter, as well as mitzvahs, maesius, and kiyumah mitzvahs. And it's given over blush and rako, it's given over in an inspirational way. It's not the equivalent of a sagei levnei yisro, which is dvorim koshim kegidin. It's the particulars and the specifics and all of the details and the minutia. That's not what they have to learn. And this is crucial in understanding how to set up the proper, the proper vehicle for good Jewish education for girls to create the proper atmosphere of a Beis Yaakov. Because ultimately we are trying to recreate that Beis Yaakov. We're trying to recreate the atmosphere, the avir, of a Beis Yaakov, of the Jewish home, the way it was in its classical sense. True, we no longer educate them in the classical sense, but we're certainly to whatever degree possible trying to recreate that atmosphere, that avir of a Beis Yaakov, of the Jewish home. I therefore feel it's a very telling statement that Jewish schools for girls are called Beis Yaakovs because as Rameir Shapiro said, this was the classic and ideal way of educating Jewish girls. When this is properly understood, we see that the Beis Yaakov innovation, although it was certainly innovative, but it wasn't a radical, revolutionary upheaval in halacha and in Jewish life. It was trying to repair that which was broken and was trying to repair it in a permissible way and with an eye to the traditional approaches. And although it seems innovative, but it was not revolutionary and it was not bypassing and short-circuiting the halacha. It was well within the halacha guidelines. And the people that were behind it were not focused on an agenda. They were not focused on equality. It wasn't women's suffrage. It wasn't feminism that motivated them. 
but rather these problems, as the Ritvaz himself pointed out, the problem of the destruction and the deterioration of the Jewish home and the decline in Jewish values as a whole that resulted in women being exposed to so many things in a decadent culture without being reinforced and fortified with some sort of a Torah education and Torah value. That's what the focus was on. That's what the eye was focused on, not on any of the modern issues and agendas. Sarah Schneer was not a radical. Sarah Schneer was not a revolutionary. She was a creative person. She was an innovator. And she has much to her credit. But it was well within the guidelines and outlooks and ideals of the, of the Torah perspective. And that's why the Gedolim supported her. Yes, there was controversy. But the controversy was because the means that she was employing to make a, an institution to institutionalize and to formalize a, a Jewish education for women is a departure from the traditional methods and are the benefits going to outweigh the, the deficits. The Gedolim determined that there were greater benefits to be accrued than there were deficiencies in the system. But it wasn't gender freedom and emancipation of women and all of these things. Those weren't the ideals. It was traditional Jewish ideals that was the, was the root cause of all of these changes.